listener exclusive. G'day and welcome to Behind the Hits. I'm Brendan Anakin, giving you the inside word on some of music's most iconic songs featuring stories from the artists who made them. In this episode, we're going behind the hits of Evanescence and Linkin Park. Two bands that burst onto the music scene in the early noughties and, unlike similar bands of the time, defied a dwindling genre to carve out respective paths to superstardom. In this episode of Behind the Hits, we'll take a closer look at some of the songs that helped them do that, kicking off with a track from Linkin Park that truly defined the sound of a new age. At the start of the new millennium, the Y2K bug may not have had much of an impact on the world, but from a music perspective, new metal was packing one hell of a punch. Leading the charge in that area was Linkin Park, whose debut album Hybrid Theory would go on to become the best-selling rock record of the 21st century. The album is characterised by its raw and emotive lead single, One Step Closer. Instrumentally, the song came together almost effortlessly, as late vocalist Chester Bennington recalls. The song was like basically written in the parking garage during a photo shoot when Brad was just diddling with his guitar. It wasn't plugged in anything, it was just there for a prop so that he could get some good pictures. And he just looked up and he goes, I just wrote the single. And we all went, what? And he just kind of, you know, played it, you know, silently on, on his strings. And next thing you know, it was in the recording studio and we were banging it out. And when we were working on the lyrics, it was like a very intense part of the writing process. And I was like kind of going a little loopy. I just got really frustrated and me and Mike were sitting there going, well, let's hone that, you know? It's like, let's get that and write about it. For band members Mike Shinoda and Brad Delson, nailing the lyrics for One Step Closer were definitely the most frustrating part of the process. We worked on the lyrics for like a month and it just got to the point where we were just so worn out, you know? we were. That's like, that's not like a little bit of shade. That's like, everyone's done <laughs> recording. Mike and Chester are left there, like sitting at the computer for 12 hours a day in a very expensive Studio, you know, something we were totally unfamiliar with, with a lot of pressure to like finish songs. Yeah, yeah. And people, people showing up and saying like, "So how's it going?" And it's like, well, you know, I've, I've been stressing out about the song for 18 hours. I don't want somebody asking me how I'm doing. You know, um, it's really, it really puts pressure on you. And we, we got to that point where Chester and I were just like, so, so tired and and fatigued that. We were we were a mess. He was he was. I remember he had there was like a bowl of fruit, and he was just like he was he went insane and was like throwing fruit around the place because he was like I don't I don't know what else I could write that's gonna make this song work, and that's kind of where that song came from. One step closer is is is, is a strong song about frustration and and um, you know when when you've got a when your your social life is being a little bit uh, the the people around you you have to kind of like. I don't want to say neglect, but they, they, it, it can feel that way because um, you work so hard in the studio and then you know, you're not talking to all these people that you're friends with and that gets stressful and then you're in the studio and things aren't, things aren't happening as quickly as you want and that's stressful. So that's where the words come from. Destined to be no one-hit wonder, the band followed up their impressive debut with an equally powerful second single which highlighted the band's ability to combine light and shade within their sound. His drummer Rob Burden with Chester Bennington. Just as sonically, we try to be dynamic in terms of having, you know, really loud, heavy, aggressive sounding parts and really uh, more delicate, softer, melodic parts. I think that thematically, they're dealing with everything from frustration, whereas it's like a love song. So if you really listen to the record and and really look at the lyrics, um, I think there are a lot of themes that. that yeah, and on. and and honestly, I mean. It's not like I uh, I go in and sit down and write a song and go, okay, I'm mad now. I'm going to write a mad song. 
Um, usually, uh, to, to answer the question of how often are we in a Lincoln Park mood, I think that we're always in a Lincoln Park mood because there are so many different attitudes and moods that we have on the record. We speak everything from not being confident within yourself to being frustrated with the world around you to being in love and also to falling out of love. We talk about all of those different things. And those are just like life experiences that people happen to run into on a daily basis in any situation. I can write a song that's angry about something as meaningless as stubbing my toe. And it just happens to be, I'm the type of guy who, when I stub my toe, I punch a wall and then I hurt my hand and then I elbow something else. You know what I mean? <laughs> it doesn't make much sense, but that can lead it up to uh, me thinking about, you know what, why am I so upset like this? What makes me act out like this? Let me think about this. And I'll try to write about and connect that into some type of verbal communication that doesn't necessarily talk about something specific that happened to me, but it's just an emotion. Um, and I don't think any type of emotion that you talk about leads to violence or anything like that. I think everybody who acts out in a, in a violent manner is going to act out whether or not they have anything lyrically to attach it to or not. They're just that type of person. From the hushed tinkling of the ivories in the intro to the heavily distorted guitars in the chorus, in the end ran the gamut of the volume meter, a trend that would continue throughout most of the band's catalogue. In the end was also the first taste of shared vocal duties by joint frontman Chester Bennington and multi-instrumentalist Mike Shinoda. Alternating between Shinoda's jagged rhymes in the verses and Bennington's soaring vocals in the chorus, passing the mic and sharing the spotlight became an ongoing theme in the music of Linkin Park. I think that's something that we've always that we've always wanted to do. Uh, the band's always always had that, and um, when we found Chester, um, we kind of were looking. It's it's almost like we were looking for Chester. We were looking for somebody like that, and uh, we found him. You know, we 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 were sending out tapes of, of we they would have they had three songs uh, with lyrics and everything, and then they have three instrumentals, and the person would send it back with their version over top of the instrumentals, and he did that immediately. Like, we sent him one, he sent it back almost, he got it done the same day, and called us the next day, and basically flew out that day, so ever since he's been in Los Angeles. It's like, when he sent it, when he played it for us over the phone, we heard it and knew that, that was what was gonna work. From new metal to rap, from rock and even pop, Throughout their existence, Linkin Park refused to be pigeonholed by a particular genre, staying true to who they were rather than what others wanted them to be. I don't think we really have a message. I don't think that we're out there trying to convey some secret that we have or try to preach some philosophy. We're just out there really trying to just write honest music and write songs that we, and write music, not along with melody and lyrics, but also music that we really enjoy listening to and playing and performing. and. Um, also spreading our wings that way, you know, and trying new things, experimenting with new recording techniques, um, you know, working with new sounds and new instruments and um, really focusing on those things also. And I think that, I think our, our theme throughout our career is going to be um, that there really aren't any limits of what, what kind of sound that we can produce and make it sound like Linkin Park. That's really what I think our theme is going to try to be. That's Chester Bennington in 2001. Even back then, it was obvious that Linkin Park had a very clear direction and purpose. It was the honesty in their music that saw them continue on an upward trajectory until Bennington's premature passing in 2017. 
Around the same time the band were getting their first taste of success in the early noughties, another band in the new metal genre were trying to carve out their own slice of the audience. And they struck gold straight away with a sound that had many comparing them to Linkin Park. Hailing from Little Rock, Arkansas, Evanescence exploded onto the world music scene in 2002 with the song Bring Me To Life, the lead single from their debut record, Fallen. Slipping into the jet stream of a new sound created by Linkin Park, Evanescence also experimented with that dynamic of dueling vocal styles against a heavy rock sound. For Evanescence, though, theirs was a sound with one distinct difference. The thing about being a woman and being in a rock band and being the front woman and all that, people expect that I'm not... um, a writer or a musician. They expect that I'm just the front person and the singer and maybe I write the lyrics, but it's funny how that works. But everyone's so used to seeing a woman in the front and then all the work actually being being done in the back by all the guys. Um, And I've got a great band and they're awesome musicians and I, I do rely on them for my show and everything else, but I'm also the main writer and I do make the music and I did before too. It's like I've done so much work and like I only get credit for like 10% 10% of it. Um, but yeah, I, I push myself to my limits as a musician um, and as a writer and a performer and everything. Although it offered a point of difference sonically, if you ask Amy Lee, the debut single that put the band on the map isn't the one she would have chosen. When we wrote Bring Me To Life, I didn't think, wow, this is it. This is the one song that's better than all of our other songs. I mean, I thought that every time we wrote a song, like every time we wrote a song, we would like be like, yes, this is it. This is the first single. So when we did it with Bring Me To Life, it wasn't weird. I I really actually thought when we put the record out that Going Under would be the first single. I, I always felt like we had a lot of songs that um, were great. I, I love all the songs on the album. And I guess ideally when we finished, I was like, yeah, there's like seven singles to choose from. But that's just because, you know, I love our band. So um, I don't know. It wasn't about being overly confident that it was a huge hit. It was just about, I like our band. So as long as people want to listen, we'll be there to put music out. But perhaps it was the universal relatability to Lee's lyrics that made Bring Me To Life the ideal track to introduce the band to the world. Bring Me To Life is like the way I write most of the lyrics, which is not necessarily about an event, but the feelings that I've had because of some events, you know, like uh, it's usually that I'll take a feeling that I have and try to just you know, talk about that feeling. And there were some specific instances that inspired it. Once uh, I was very unhappy in a relationship and uh, I just hadn't realized it. And I just been sort of like numb to it and you don't think about it, you're just like unhappy. And someone that I didn't even know um, sat down with me waiting to get food in a restaurant before all our friends came in. We were there alone for like two seconds and he said, are you happy? (laughs) And I felt like uh, for a second, I actually was like, oh my God, like is he clairvoyant? and like looked down because I felt for just a split second like he could see into my eyes and into my brain and um, you know deeper than I could even see because I was numb to the situation and that's what inspired the first verse but beyond that I think the song is about you know just searching for meaning you know it's there's so much apathy in our generation everyone just wants to just like sit around and like the internet all this stuff like nobody wants to get up and go and uh, it's just about you know wake me up make me stop doing nothing every day I want to live. The rap section of the song was originally intended for Linkin Park's Mike Shinoda, so it's understandable how comparisons between the early work of both bands are still made today. Shinoda ultimately turned it down, with the rap in Bring Me To Life being delivered by Paul McCoy from the band 12 Stones. When Evanescence were in the studio recording their debut album, Linkin Park were actually recording Meteora in the studio next door. Later on, Chester Bennington expressed his disappointment at how similar Bring Me To Life sounded to Linkin Park, which may be one reason why the two bands never performed together. 
Although it was unable to emulate the success Bring Me To Life had on the charts, Going Under, the second single from Evanescence, showcased a different side to Amy Lee's songwriting, one that she was only too happy to have on display. Going Under is um, a more aggressive song. Um, it's coming from a less vulnerable place. It's, it's kind of, uh, we're at the point where you're like, okay, you're at the end of a bad relationship, and it's just like, I'm not gonna take this anymore, and you're putting your foot down. And um, it's, it's not hopeless. It's like, it's like, it's like, I'm gonna get through this, and I'm getting out of here. Lead singer Amy Lee always knew she wanted to make a career out of music. Originally when I was writing music, it was like piano music, more classically influenced, just straight piano music. And then um, as I became more like a weird kind of dark teenager, I started singing too into the music and be like, ooh, you know, and writing more contemporary kind of stuff and playing on piano and guitar. And I remember being, I don't remember what age, but somewhere young teen, maybe 15, 14, something and going, I have to do this at least once. Not that this is my only dream, this is the only thing I ever want to do, but I've got to do this. Like, I just have to make music and be good at it and live up to my potential, like, as a performer and as a musician. And then um, when I went to college, we had the band going and all that by then. Um, I left high school and went to college, and I only went to college as a backup. Like, I found a college that wasn't very expensive that I could afford, and it was a music school in Tennessee. And I majored in um, theory composition, music. Um, and I thought that, well, while we're trying to get a record deal and working on everything as a band, um, I'll go to college and get to start working on getting my music degree so that I can um, be a score composer. Because I thought if that wouldn't work out, then I'd try to start making music for whatever I could. The third single from Evanescence, My Immortal, would make the band a household name, but it wasn't fame the band were chasing. It's it's like that when you're when you're Britney Spears. It's like that when you're J Lo. And not being a pop star has been really cool because I'm 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 not. We're still we may be like famous or whatever, but we're still in a rock band. And people in a rock band just look like people in a rock band for the most part. I think that if it wasn't for me being a girl, people wouldn't recognize us at all. So um, that's cool. I I would prefer to be recognized less, but I still don't get recognized that much. I can pretty much go wherever, and it's not a big deal. I really don't care about being famous or success or any of that bullshit. Like, I, I don't, I really, it's like success and how many records you sell and, and all that stuff are really meaningless. It's just the reason you need, obviously, for people to buy your records is so that people can hear your music and you can continue to write music and make money enough to make another record. So I think that's what's really important is the fans. For Evanescence, their second album, The Open Door, would prove to be just as critically and commercially successful as Fallen. The song Call Me When You're Sober was a thinly veiled jab at the behaviour of Amy Lee's ex-boyfriend, Sean Morgan, the lead singer of Seether. The content of the song cut pretty close to the bone for Morgan. He cancelled his band's tour and checked himself into rehab the day the song was released back in September 2006. It was the last song written for the album, but would serve as the first single. Call Me When You're Sober was one of those songs where two very different ideas were mashed up together and fit strangely well, and that became the song. That happens sometimes. So I remember I had that beginning that I was singing that, you know, became the chorus part, that don't cry to me. And I was being funny. I wasn't trying to write an Evanescence song. I was just singing, like, out of pain. I was going through a breakup and just being sarcastic and just singing it out. And then uh, Terry was in the other room 
working on this heavy riff that was just completely different. And it just kind of occurred to me, like, what if those two totally different things went together? Let's just try it. You know, can't hurt anything. Um, but I didn't really expect it to work. And uh, I remember both of us were just like laughing and excited that what was so cool about it was the contrast between those two things. And I think that's something that I've learned over and over again through art uh, and music making that two really, really different things coming together uh, can make something truly unique. And it's cool to be able to show that two very different things can work so, so well together. In 2006, the song cracked the top 10 in more than 15 countries and peaked at number five on the Aussie charts. Almost 20 years since they started, Evanescence are still going strong. In March 2021, the band released their fifth album, The Bitter Truth. The album's third single, Use My Voice, recorded during the COVID pandemic, was an ode to unity. Use My Voice has been such a special experience because... Um, it's just kind of been on this long journey for a couple of years to finally being finished now. And all along the way, um, different people have helped and supported it, you know, and believed in it and pushed it along. And uh, one of my favorite parts of that was uh, calling all my friends to sing on the track from Lizzie Hill to Taylor Momsen to Sharon Denadel, uh, and even my sisters and my guitar player, Troy's wife, Amy. Um, just getting all that support and asking for it and having it be such a fun thing and an opportunity for us all to be a part of something together uh, during a time that, you know, was all about the pandemic and feeling frustrated and locked down um, for us to find a way to push through and still connect to each other felt so good. Uh, and every time I hear the song and every time I sing the song and I hear all those voices with me, it makes me feel unified with my sisters and empowered. There's still that trademark evanescent sound in the new songs, along with some definite relatability in the lyrics. It's something Amy Lee had pegged when talking about the band's music back in 2004. I don't know if our music is popular because of just the sound and, and the combination of genres that we use. I think the way it sounds is part of it. I, I hope also that um, people feel like they can relate to the, the lyrics and, and the meanings and the fact that it's um, something real and genuine and not us trying to sell you something. Um, and the music comes from that place too, so I think that's important. Yeah, it doesn't sound um, commercial. It doesn't really sound like other stuff on the radio, I don't think. Um, but I think that's what I think that's what people really, really want in the first place. is isn't something that sounds like everything else. You've been listening to Behind the Hits, giving you the stories behind some of the biggest songs from Evanescence and Linkin Park. This episode was written and hosted by me, Brendan Anakin. Audio production by Mike Santos. Produced by Dave Carter. Listener.